Welcome back to a brand new episode of the All Immigrant Podcast. I am your host, Abin. I am once again joined by my co-host, Vivek. And we have a brand new guest today. Vivek, could you do the honors, please? Yep. I want to start by saying, Abin, I'm glad you didn't call me Rohit again. So, ah. <laughs> low-hanging fruit there, but... <laughs> No, but, uh, but either way, so yeah, we have, you know, we're, we're, we're gaining some momentum. We're extremely excited about where things are going. Uh, we have an amazing new guest today and I would uh, like, I'm very honored to introduce her to you. Uh, so I, I would like to introduce Dr. Malani. Uh, so I've known, I've known Sonia Malani for a few months now. Um, so I met her and her mother at a common friend's birthday party, I think somewhere last year. Uh, her mother and I actually hit, hit off, hit off instantly because we share the same alma mater from Mumbai. Uh, which we discovered <laughs> later on, which was amazing. Uh, and, you know, over the course of the year, Sonia has become extremely good friends with, with Wish, my wife. Uh, and th- this, this episode came to be because, uh, you know, Wish, Wish talks about how, how accomplished Sonia is constantly and how she's done all these amazing things and she's doing all these amazing things. Um, and I, actually, that, you know, that got me to saying, oh, you know what? Uh, Sonia has an amazing story. I, I would love to chat with her about, you know, uh, through this podcast. And that that's what led to, uh, the events will be reaching out to Sonia for this. So thank you, Sonia, for for accepting. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, she's of course a very accomplished woman. She has a she has a doctorate in, in naturopathic medicine. She's completed her residency in clinical focus in integrative oncology and palliative medicine. She's going to explain what that means to all of us very shortly. <laughs> she, she's an all she's also a contributing author to Ann Berger's fifth edition uh, of principles and practice of palliative oncology. Uh, she is a co-investigator at the AIMS Cancer Outcome Study, a prospective outcome study measuring overall survival in cancer patients utilizing integrative oncology. She currently sees patients. She, she teaches. She writes. She acts as a research consultant for integrative and functional medicine uh, across organizations nationwide in the, in the U.S. She's also a certified yoga instructor, meditation teacher, a psychotherapy provider, and when she's not working. She perfects her barista skills, rummaging through local libraries and spending time with her family. <sighs> okay, that's the introduction. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> now, you know, hearing my introduction back um, explains why I'm so tired all the time. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Okay, I think, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess there's only one place to start, uh, Sonia. So I, Vivek did mention to me that uh, your parents moved to the, the United States several decades ago, and I'm sure that when they left, they had a certain image of what the country was like. How much of that image influenced your upbringing? Yeah, so my parents um, came over to the U.S. in the 70s. My dad was a medical doctor, an MD, and uh, came over to the U.S. to finish up his residency, finish up his training, and start practicing in the U.S. Um, my parents, like many, had an arranged marriage, and so once... Um, you know, it was one of those situations where mom and dad met two weeks later, they're getting married, 1200 people at their wedding um, in Bombay. And so, yeah, one of those types of situations. But um, once my parents got married, my mom came over and um, I was I'm the third and uh, youngest um, of the family. So I have two older sisters. There's a pretty big age gap amongst my sisters and I. So I'm 10 years younger than my oldest sister. And the reason that I say that is because I feel like being the youngest um, in a family, in a first generation family is kind of a little bit of a, 
a, a different um, feeling than what the firstborn has, right? So the eldest, my older sister, was their my parents' first experience of having a child in the U.S. Um, again, you know, my parents being born and raised in Bombay didn't know all of the little nuances of American culture. Um, having after school peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Sesame Street was totally foreign to them. Uh, things like, um, you know, what to pack at a school lunch or, you know, how to talk to your kids about college and how to prepare for an internship. All of those were really new. And they, my parents had to go through that for the first time with my sister, uh, my oldest sister, Priya. But what is interesting, I feel like about my upbringing is that my parents in some ways allowed my sisters to do a lot of my kind of coaching and counseling as I grew up. So, you know, when when it came to deciding what to do for schools or what to do for careers, because my parents knew that my sisters had more experience being in the US, they would they would often say, "Hey, why don't you ask your sisters about college essays or interviews or how to, you know, get an internship?" And so, um it's interesting because my oldest sister sometimes will comment that she kind of had the brunt of, you know, the all the growing pains of what it's like to come over to a new country and try to speak the same language, you know, uh, for your kids um, when you haven't really been born and raised here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I kind of had it easy, to be honest. I do feel like my parents did an amazing job. Um maintaining and keeping the values and the culture of what they grew up with while also allowing me to completely explore and completely accept the environment in which I was being raised in. Awesome. Wow. So it, it's interesting because I'm also a younger sibling. So I, I think I, I can empathize in the sense that, you know, my brother is uh, almost five years older than me. So uh, he also uh, over time has become like a parent, like a third parent. Uh, even today, you know, when, when I talk to him, I, I call my mom and dad and I call my brother and, you know, it's kind of like this, uh, this triangle of this parenting triangle that we have going on here. Yeah. So, so I completely, under, I completely get it. It's, it's similar. I think every younger sibling with an older sibling who is a little older by more than a couple of years, I think would totally understand. understand yeah. That. As an, yeah. As an, as an older sibling, I can attest to the fact that <laughs> yes, uh, uh, the younger sibling does have it a lot easier. I think see, nothing ever prepares you for parenthood, right? So I, you can read all the books you want. You can watch whatever, vid- I mean, now you can watch whatever videos, take whatever courses. When it hits you, it hits you like a ton of bricks and you have no idea what to expect because each experience is so unique. Yeah. So definitely my parents uh, had a very unique uh, <laughs> scenario with me as well. And then when my sister came along, she just looked at whatever was going right and wrong with me and just decided to go ahead with what was right. And so uh, my parents would definitely say they had a tougher time raising me, not because I was a horrible child or anything. It was just because it was uh, such a new experience for them. Uh, and uh, like like Sonia mentioned that it's as as the youngest in, in, in a family, it definitely seems a lot easier. Yeah, it's kind of a double whammy, right? For the eldest, not only is it the parent's first rodeo with raising a child, but then for you know, parents who have just relocated and immigrated to an entirely different country, it's like, okay, okay, wait, I'm doing parenthood and also a lot of other things for the very first time. Um, and I can't even imagine, you know, it, 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 these questions were, are so insightful because um, I'd love to go back and kind of ask even my mom and, you know, see what, what her experience was like with my oldest sister. I do know that um, my eldest sister has just really kind of 
she's always kind of been a second parent to me. And so it's, it's, that's, and even my other sister, I, my other sister, seven years older, um, Nisha, but they've both played a really major role in the way that I've grown up because they were the ones that were more savvy in some ways. Um, that makes sense. I know. Absolutely. So, you know, so, I mean, you mentioned, you know, immigration, you mentioned your parents. Um, so I just, I guess, you know, in the U S did you grow up and, uh, obviously, you know, you had, you had visible differences that you mentioned some of the references that, you know, that, that your parents may not know and something that you were also learning. So maybe talk us through where you grew up uh, and some of the, the differences you, you found with other kids in the U S and how did you reconcile those differences? Yeah. So I also had kind of a unique experience here. So I was born in New York in Westchester County. Um, but at the age of around three or four, my family relocated to um, a small town in Kentucky. And the intention and the reason for the relocation was my dad was a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And at the time there was a, um, a children's hospital here, um, in Kentucky that really needed some support, really needed psychiatrists. And so they recruited my dad from New York. Um, the, the, what I was told, um, is when we were supposed, when we moved down here, uh, my dad was like, all right, we'll do a couple of years. I'll help get this hospital up and running. And then we'll move back to New York. Well, we never moved back to New York. So I spent pretty much age four through 18 in, um, Kentucky and then actually ended up moving, moving back to New York for college. But, um, the re you know, Kentucky, uh, being a minority, in a small town in America, regardless of what state you're in, is already has its difficulties. Um, but then being in a small town, primarily white in the South, is kind of a whole different ballgame, right? So um, there was definitely visible differences. Um, there was, you know, something that I would get comments a lot on is just the accents of my parents. Um, both my parents were born in, and raised in um and obviously Bombay, but they were brought up in English speaking schools. English was their first language, but obviously there's going to be an accent, right? My mom is fluent in French. She's, you know, speaks German. She can speak so many different dialects in, of Hindi and same with my dad. He was fluent in many different languages, but even though they were, had perfect English, there still was a little bit of an accent to it. Right. And in Kentucky, when everyone sounds the same, that really stands out. So that was, you know, as soon as you open up your mouth, people realize, oh, were different. Um, and then just a lot of the cultures and the values I was, you know, I think it, um, in India, particularly, there's a, a lot of respect for elders and parents. And, you know, um, that's something that I was really raised with that I remember was like also kind of a big difference amongst me and my friends. I would go over and always say like, hi, Mrs. You know, John or Jane, you know, always address them very formally. And my friends would come over and call my parents by their first name, which was like, <laughs> That was was just foreign to me. So there was definitely a lot of um, cultural differences. Again, you know, I mentioned earlier, my my parents did an amazing job of just trying to help us assimilate as best as we could. So, you know, if there was um, if my friends wanted to take me to church or take me to synagogue or take me to, you know, their family get together, my parents would encourage me to go. We're very, very much like go explore experience and teach us what you learn. Right. Like it was a very um, kind of uh, collaborative and forward thinking environment that I grew up in. But, yeah, I mean, our food tastes different. Our food smells different. Our house, you know, quote, smelled like curry a lot. Um, <laughs> and I think the way that I handled it, honestly, was I developed my own sense of humor. I think anyone that went to high school or or, you know, middle school um, will know that, like, I was the first to make the joke before they were able to. I would say the curry joke or I would make, you know, whatever it was. 
Um, and I think that was a little bit of like a protective mechanism so that I could just prote protect on um, myself from what was about to be said. And I think as I've grown up and as I've gotten older, I've really started to embrace the things that make me different um, because that's, that's, you know, in my m medical practice and practicing medicine, that's what allows me to, you know, really be there and, and, and help people the way that I do. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's hard for a lot of kids who are the minority growing mm -hmm. up. Um, and you have to develop a lot of resilience at a really young age. You know, it's it's funny that when uh, when we're growing up, we're, we're we're kind of taught in school to fit in, to fit in, and you know when we get into college and we go we go we get into the professional world or whatever we're doing, we always we're always like, oh, we got to find a way to be different. You know, it's kind of like everything yeah. we're taught throughout our life, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh no, you got to go do the exact opposite now. So it's yeah, I, it's I totally. It's get like it. you're 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 punished for uh, stepping out of bounds growing up because you so you're supposed to confine to the norms so specifically but then when you're applying to universities like much like what the vague said they ask you what makes you special and yeah. you're looking at the form going well i there was something special about me but we've given the the learnings and the, and the teachings around me uh I, I don't know anymore which is why so many people are at that crossroads at that point in time so uh yeah. coming off the of the back of back of that uh question Sonia, i just wanted to know given like you having to try to fit in uh, in high school and just generally amongst your peers. Uh, and I think a lot of second-gen immigrants are labeled with the tag, uh, with the ABCD tag, specifically mm -hmm. by, by other Indians. Uh, and I just wanted to know that growing up and even now to a certain degree, like which, like do you, uh, do you associate yourself more with the Indian side of you? Do you associate yourself more with the American side of you? Is it a bit of, uh, is it a scenario where it's like the best of both worlds? How, do, how does that work for you? Yeah, you know, I think it, I think two things. I think it's a little bit of the best of both worlds. And I think it also is contextually, right? I think there's certain, you know, certain situations, certain environments where I'm allowed to sort of show a little bit more of that Indian side of me, um, where I know it will be understood and received. Um, and when I don't feel like it will be understood or received, I do tend to, to you know, pack it down a little bit. Um, and I think, again, that's, you know, kind of a tactic or, uh, you know, safety mechanism that you do probably develop as a child um, in order to help navigate some of these different situations. Um, you know, I think the first time you hear some of the comments about how you are different, it can really sting and it can really burn and kind of leave, you know, um, leave you feeling like you were less than. And I think it's so... I, I do feel like sometimes when I'm in those situations, even till today, I will say, okay, like, is it safe? Is it safe for me to show this side of myself? Right. Um, because what I feel, you know, from like a nervous system perspective, because I'm always thinking about health, when you have that safety, that's when you can be your most authentic self and show your most authentic self, right? When your body doesn't feel safe and your body thinks it's running away from a bear, it's going to shut down and it's not, you're not mm -hmm. going to operate. Your prefrontal cortex is not going to be thinking. So um, I definitely would say that I'm, I'm good at sort of um, assessing the situation. I remember really vividly a moment that when I left Kentucky and finally ended up back in New York, I went to college in the city at, at NYU. And um, I remember in the um, library of uh, the college campus, um, I walked into the library and I walked into the back where there was these elevators. And I remember getting onto the elevator, you know, kind of my first weekend uh, at the school and the elevator within the elevator, there was like six different languages being spoken. 
you know, they're all different languages. Hindi was being spoken. Mandarin was being spoken. English was being spoken. And I remember taking a huge sigh of relief of like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that's different anymore. And I think that, I think college for me was really the time that I started to come into myself. And, um, you know, I had a much bigger and diverse friend group just simply because I was living in a bigger city. And so not only was I able to develop really strong friendships with um, people who were similar, like the ABCDs or, you know, people whose parents were from India, but also from all over the world. And I think at the end of the day, when you talk to people who have immigrated here, we all have a similar experience from the standpoint of there still is in America, at least us versus them. And it's, it's something that every, you know, immigrant or person who is different has to learn how to tow. Yeah, I was told this so when I, I moved to New York as well, uh, and I was reaching out to this. There's one of one of my mentors was at the, at the time living out on the West Coast, and he mentioned that this is something you'd you'd have to keep an eye out for because I you know walked in and without a clue, just I'm like oh opportunity, I'm going to figure this out, and very quickly realized that oh there is there are certain ways to do ways to do things, and he mentioned that there is very clearly an us versus them mentality, and it may not be out there but it it definitely exists it's, there's a strong undercurrent of it so i totally get what you mean yeah, no, yeah. I, I think you're right and i mean it's also very indiv- individualistic right so it's us, us versus them probably exists it's also individual right everyone is in a it's it's less community centric uh in i mean specifically talking about the u.s now but it's less community centric more individualistic that's kind of how society is is woven here right and and i think that would be a big a big difference uh from somebody, you know, some, some somebody who's who's grown up in India, who or who have had parents, you know, having exposed to being exposed to Indian culture. So that's definitely mm-hmm. a different, a, you know, a stark difference point. I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I was just talking to um, a friend about uh, who recently had kids and is trying to build this like village. Right, there's this whole concept, and you know, for um, people who are new parents in the U.S. right now. It's like, okay, we got to build our tribe. We got to build our village to help raise our, you know, raise our children. And in India, that's just a given, right? And even amongst the Indians who are in the U.S., there still is more of that tribal or village mentality. It's like, okay, you know, I see that you maybe need some food. Let me drop some off or come over for some chai or it's, you know, it's very much um, kind of this collaborative uh, collectivism. Um, And, but you know, what's, what's frustrating is I do think that, COVID, at least in the U.S., really changed that even for immigrants, even for people who were born in India or whatever country you're coming from, like a country that has a little bit more collectivism, I think was shaken up a little bit by COVID because we it was a time where we literally were not safe from one another. Like we had to keep we had to stay away in order to keep ourselves safe. And I've been wondering and hoping and kind of um, just really looking for that sense of community post COVID, um, amongst Indians, amongst Americans, whoever it is. Right. But I do think, um, that that has changed. Have you guys noticed that that's been some of your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in college, I was in my last semester of grad school when, when COVID hit and I was going up to Westchester County every day for, um, for an internship. And I think within, within two weeks I was, because I was in the MBA program and it required you to be so, uh, what do you call it, social, and definitely. And I there was a whole issue with me getting uh, getting to the program because I was late. There was a whole uh, whole scenario around it. But 
I'd say around December and January, I finally started to like get close to a lot of people and then COVID hit. And then suddenly, you know, like there was this not and because we were all like, like you mentioned, we were all, uh, we all had to be wary of each other because no one knew who was carrying what. Uh, there was almost like this invisible wall that was put between your, your groups, your groups of friends. And I think it's coming back now. Like those walls are slowly coming down now because through 2020, it was obviously unless unless people you lived with, like unless you, you saw on a daily basis and you had no choice because living in New York, the, the chances of you having roommates were are obviously infinitely higher. Uh, unless it was dope, those people, you weren't really seeing anybody else. And I think the longer it went, the more comfortable we got in our isolation. Uh, I would I would almost like to say I was I was a far more social being pre-COVID than I am now. I'm, which which is both a good and a bad thing, really, because um, I do enjoy my uh, my my alone time a lot more than I used to before because uh, I really struggled with it the, in the earlier parts of parts of COVID, right? But I definitely feel that um, things. I mean, we're slowly getting back together. Uh, we're, we're opening up to each other a lot more than we have we have in the last three four years. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Mm. The other the other aspect of COVID that has been kind of um, has changed, I think, a little bit of America's individualism is just because of like inflation and how expensive everything has gotten. A lot of kids are moving back home with their parents and starting to like live back in those communities just simply because it's financially responsible and it you know can be sometimes financially beneficial. And I've seen because you know in, in America it's always it's like okay, once you're 18, you're out of the house, you're out yeah. of the house, go somewhere else for college. You don't stay close for college. You leave. Even if you live in a great city, you leave that city and go somewhere else. And now I'm noticing that the talk amongst, I guess, Gen Z is more about like, okay, let me start, you know, maybe I need to take care of my parents. Maybe I'll stay close to home so that I can help support my family or help support my parents. And it's a little, I, I did think COVID um, impacted the younger generation in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, and I think we've seen a whole lot of millennials move back home, which has been interesting um, as well. But yeah, that's that's something that I, um, even though we are maybe less social, I think there has been some intrinsic community values that have come out of um, this pandemic. Absolutely, I think I think COVID really brought me closer to my parents because uh, one, uh, I saw what it did to a lot to a lot of people. So I was in Westchester County for the first wave. I was sorry, I was in New York for the first wave where things were really bad. And I was in India for the Delta wave where things were horrendous. And I and it uh, it was like, we just announced the vaccines, but no one is really taking them. And within, I think the summer of 2021, it just, things went absolutely uh, kaput, right? And that whole experience really brought me closer to my folks. And I think it also has to do with I turned 30 that year and the older you get, you start to realize that, oh, you, I'm getting old, but my parents are getting older. And right. then you suddenly have to, to contend with the idea of, uh, of mortality. And that just, that's a very scary concept. Mm. So it's just, um, you know, you know, I, I definitely would say that like, like piggybacking off your point that the idea of community, especially amongst your close peers, really, uh, really fostered uh, in, in, in like for me personally, anyway, uh, in these last years. Yeah. So I started my MBA last year. So that was, you know, just after the whole, I mean, not after, but kind of, I think the worst year of the pandemic was 2020 and it kind of got a little better in 2021. 
So uh, I started my MBA in 2021. And I, I think, you know, um, I, I kind of have ex- had a really good experience in terms of, I've had a very mixed experience. I've had, you know, a lot of um, a mixing of, I mean, no one really seems to care. You know, it's, it's, it's almost as if COVID is not a thing, which, which is scary at some level, but also I, I didn't find the, you know, the, uh, I, I found the, the kind of friends I make very cross-cultural. I didn't find, uh, I, I don't find it to be like very clickish, you know, so I think that part of it has been very positive uh, for me, but it also could be a functional fact that, you know, it's business school and everyone's here to make friends with everyone. That's kind of the point of being there. So you don't want to, it's not, it's not college. So I, I pr- probably discount my experience a bit because I think going to college might be a little different experience today than, than you know, than it was uh, pre-COVID. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No, so we, you know, we spoke so much about culture right, and the importance of, and the importance of culture, and you know how how there is a, a cultural difference here. So I, I think the next question, you know, we want to just you know jump into culture for a second. So obviously, you know, you have this unique cultural experience and, and culture and cultural identity from you know from many people uh, around you. So how, how you know how do you value that, and how important is that uh, uh, to you, and is it tied to your self worth in any way? Yeah. Maybe walk us through that. Yeah. So um, I. I feel like for most people that may be struggling with the, with these kind of existential questions of who am I, what am I doing? What's my purpose? Like, what's the bigger picture? I wonder about their connection to culture and values. And the reason I say that is because I've been one of those people for majority of my life. I've been asking those big questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? Like, ask any of my friends, they will ask, they will tell you that I'm like chronically in an existential crisis. Um, but I have found that as I've gotten older and as I have tried to keep that Indian culture and Indian side, um, less suppressed, I have felt more connected to my purpose. And I, and I think that culture and values are the foundation for why we exist and how we and how we move in this world, right? So I think there are two different things, right? There's the cultural aspects, which are you know maybe a little bit more of your traditions and your rituals and your um, me- the meaning that you assign to things. That feels a little bit more of the cultural pieces. And then there's the values, which are just kind of your principles of like you know, um, for example, I mentioned earlier, like we in the Indian culture, we value elders. That is a you know I don't think anyone would with um, would argue with me there. And so there's, I think the value and culture that I was exposed to as a child is not one that I was necessarily like so willing to accept because I wanted to fit in. And my values and cultures were different than the values and cultures that I grew up, grew up in, right? The environment that I grew up in, in Kentucky and, and all of that. And I think as I've gotten older, that has been something that I've leaned on a lot more to get through you know, just the ups and downs of life, because it feels like to me that my values are almost like directions on a map or even like a destination on the map. As long as I know where I am going and where that destination is, then I can figure out routes. I can take an alternative route. I can take a back road. But without that destination on the map, I literally have no idea where the hell I'm going. So um, that's something that I really, you know, I've spent, um, a lot of years studying yoga, not from the physical practice, but more from the philosophical practice. And I, I just love the way that yoga, true yoga in its essence, the way that it was originally taught, not the way it's done as a fitness routine here or in many cult, in many countries now, but the philosophy and um, essence of yoga really for me has been like studying that has been how I've really solidified my values. Um, and I think that it's also like, you know, whether it's, 
the way that um, India looks at health through like the lens of Ayurveda or whether the way it looks through, you know, physical health and things like yoga or, you know, even um, just knowledge like through Vedanta, there are so many interwoven ways to interact with the philosophy and the values and the culture of India. And it's almost like I find that no matter what you're interested in, whether it's health or medicine or engineering, you can find a way to connect with the values of our culture. Um, does that make sense? It does, actually. I know it, it makes perfect sense. And I also think that we, you know, uh, when, when we're growing up, we don't necessarily understand the values of the culture that we're trying to, you know, we're looking at. And I, I feel like we, we, we kind of embrace it in our mid-20s because then we realize that, hey, you know what, this is a big part of who I am and I'm not going to try to push it away anymore, but I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to take the best the best aspects of it into my life and try to see if I can enrich my life through that. And I think and, and I think what, you, what you're saying is similar and I, I believe that, you know, we've all gone through that that journey where we push something away and then we realize, you know what, hey, this is us. This is right. part of who we are, you know. So, uh, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, great right. point. And I work with, you know, I work with cancer patients mostly, and a lot of them have terminal diagnoses, and a lot of them are going through these existential crises as well of what, you know, um, if I'm going to die, how do I want to live now? Or yeah. uh, what does death mean? And, how, you know, just they really start to look inward. And and I noticed a lot of them will go back to the religion that they were raised with, whether it's Christianity yeah. or Catholicism. And you know, that's something that I've always really wondered about as I've kind of witnessed a lot of cancer patients go through that. And I think what's amazing about Hinduism is there's, it's so much philosophy. It's not necessarily like do these things and, you know, this is exactly how to live. It's more of just like, these are, let me offer some guidance and some knowledge on how you could live. Um, and that's what, you know, I always kind of really go back to just having like faith and trust and, um, and looking at what those what those kind of north stars are, it's yeah, more spirituality than religion. Yeah, it's well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people would say that Hinduism is not a religion, right? It's yeah. more of a yeah. philosophy. It's a way of life. So, um, I think that's what's pretty amazing. Is like so inherent to India is a philosophy for life. It's not necessarily religion, but like we have a really, really deep philosophy. And whether you've been raised, you know, reading the Bhagavad Gita or not, you probably likely absorb some of that philosophy by being exposed just to the the culture um i don't even think you need to be immersed in religion uh to 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 pull from indian culture or like to to uh, or to take lessons from it right because it's ideally what culture to me is ideally been what what i've seen around me growing up culture comes through family because those are the lessons that you learn from family because these are, you take the uh, you take what they teach you, their values, their uh, how to treat people. And that, to me, plays a big part more than anything else. I'm not the most religious person. And over the years, given how the political climate in the country has been, I've more or less, I've moved further away from religion and more towards spirituality, where I embrace the idea of doing good for uh, good to other people that ultimately uh, kickstarts a whole karmic cycle. Uh, and that's all, that, that's been my... Uh, that's been my, my thought process. So I, I totally get when you, when you speak about how it's like Hinduism is more of a philosophy than it is a religion. Yeah. And that, that just makes a lot more sense. Well, and even the way that you just said, like, you know, the way that you go about and provide service to others is for your own karmic cycle. Like, you know, yeah. 
karma is something that's inherent to um, the way that we were raised of like, you know, yeah. kind of what goes around comes around and think about your actions. And, you know, I, I think that's just, that is, if you're immersed, if you're surrounded by that and immersed in that kind of, um, uh, you know, concepts, you're going to absorb it and you're going to realize like, oh, okay, I, I need to serve in a way that if it comes back to me, it's a way that I want to re- receive it. Absolutely. Now, I mean, yeah, this is a, a great uh, jump off point for my next question, because you did mention getting into oncology. Now, uh, what made you decide, what made you decide to pursue a career in medicine and why oncology? Because oncology is a very taxing um, super specialization given the amount of personal investment it needs. So what was the story behind that? Yeah. Yes. So I know that there is a, um, a lot of pressure within the indie community to be a doctor. I was yeah. given. No. Yeah. So I'm really, really fortunate that I was actually never given an ounce of that pressure. My dad was an MD. I grew up, you know, I was raised in a household where there was, um, my dad was a doctor. There was a lot of doctors in my extended family. Um, but interestingly enough, my dad actually never really wanted to be a doctor. He really wanted to be in Bollywood. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, growing up, he used to model, he modeled for Finlay's and did, you know, some, um, like toothpaste ads and things like that. He really wanted to be a, a model and an actor. Um, he was a really talented surgeon. And so he went to med school, was doing his, um, surgical residency in India. And there, there was a few people that were like, we are going to call producers and tell them not to allow you to audition. Like we are going to call casting <laughs> and not tell you, not allow them to tell or not allow you to audition because right. we want you to be in medicine. You're really talented. So he stayed in medicine, but it definitely wasn't his passion or his like calling. He wanted to be in a, in a more creative field. So I was never, I think because of his experience, I was never raised with being pressured towards medicine ever. Um, but what happened is that cancer just kept coming up in my life. So my mom was, well, yes. So my mom was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer when I was six years old. Um, she was sick. She went through chemotherapy, um, surgery, multiple surgeries, a lot of complications from surgeries. And for probably like age six through 10, um, I was in and out of hospitals just with her as, you know, um, after school, go to, you know, yeah. I, would after school, I would go sit at chemo with her or I would drive up to a specialty hospital for her to get a consult for a surgery. Um, so that was a huge part of my childhood. And then when I was 19 years old, I was a sophomore in college. My father was diagnosed with stage four gastric cancer. So stage four stomach cancer, it was really advanced. It had spread all over his abdomen. His prognosis was three months. And at that point I was 19. I was kind of, you know, in that, what do I want to major in? What do I want to do? And I learned about naturopathic medicine through one of his doctors. I learned about this school out on the West Coast called Bastyr University. And I learned about this um, specialty of medicine that has a really deep philosophy to it. It is about prevention. It is about seeing the body as a whole. It's about seeing the body as a system. It's about educating and teaching others about medicine and teaching them about how to interact with their body similar to osteopathic um, medicine, osteopathic philosophy. And I think within the span of 24 hours, I just, I had this like inner feeling that it was like, this is what I have to do. I have to go be a naturopathic doctor and I have to go specialize in cancer. Um, and I have to learn everything there possibly is about cancer. And of course, you know, now that I'm in the field and I'm practicing and I've had some time to, to process 
um, my feelings when I was 19 years old. I think a lot of my drive was just to never feel helpless again. You know, at that point, I'd had two diagnoses, two advanced stage cancer diagnoses in my family. Both of my parents, both primary caregivers had been diagnosed. And as a 19 year old, I never wanted to go through the feeling of feeling helpless when they're, when a family member was sick. Um, and so that has been kind of my driving force through medical school, through residency, residency, through all of my training, um, was to really kind of figure out cancer, why it happens, what we can do. Is there anything else that we can additionally do? So now I specialize in this field um, called integrative oncology, where it uses um, integrative medicine, things like botanical medicine, exercise, nutrition, lifestyle modifications, IV therapy, um, and some other advanced modalities alongside chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. And uh, my goal as an integrative oncologist is to really enhance the quality of life of my patients and also hopefully improve their overall survival so they, that they live longer than if they were to just do chemo or surgery or radiation. Um, I think medical oncologists and the field of oncology has come so far, but a huge gap in the system is cancer patients are miserable. Like they are, their quality of life is so poor. And there's a lot that we can really do from a symptom management perspective to really help them feel better through their journey and reduce the amount of hospitalizations that they have during their chemotherapy, you know, improve their recovery from surgery. Um, so there's a lot, there's a big need that can still be met for these patients. And that's kind of my goal and, and the um, impetus behind all of my research work that I do as well. Awesome. You know, when I, when I, when I first introduced you today on this podcast, um, as I was as I was walking through you know everything you've done, it made me I was thinking, wow, you know you've done a lot of amazing different things, right? But hearing your answer now, it kind of made me realize that hey, you know what? There are all these different things, but it's all it's all so weaved together. There's an underlying thing connected, right? So you're talking about holistic health, wellness. I think that's the theme, right? So you talk about yoga, which is you know the physical and the mental part. You talk about you know nutrition. You talk about you know, therapy, you talk about, you know, uh, oncology, I feel like everything that you're doing is kind of connected in a very holistic level. And it's all about, you know, the physical, mental, spiritual uh, perspective on health. And, and, and you know, when, when I see it that way, you, you know, everything you've done makes so much sense. I'm like, oh, you know, of course, yeah, of course, you would do this. Of course, you would do that. It just seems so connected to each other, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, I appreciate perspective on that. I do feel, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I have felt for this past decade has felt so led. Like I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and it just, it's, it, you know, the, the path is kind of, um, keeps getting created in front of me. So I am really grateful. My dad's um, prognosis was three months, but he ended up making it 15. He did a lot of integrative medicine alongside, um, you know, his diagnosis. And he knew that I was, this was my journey and he passed away right before I started medical school. But I don't know, in some ways it kind of feels like this was his last gift of like helping me figure out what I was, meant to do in this lifetime, you know? Um, and I, I really now, like, I can't even imagine myself doing anything else. I was originally studying to be a graphic designer and I was working in a magazine in New York city. I was making, you know, like I was really thought my, the rest of my life was going to be spent in, in graphics. And while I still love like the creative side and I still love making graphics and I, you know, like now in the age of Instagram, like I love spending 15 minutes on a post or things like that. Um, from a graphic perspective, I just cannot imagine myself doing anything else. Truly, it's amazing. The artwork yeah. on this episode is needs to be zero bullshit. Like now, now that I know, 
So, <laughs> That's early so no, you really bring our A game for this one, Vivek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you. Uh, so you know you, Sonia. You spoke about you spoke about your parents for some time. You spoke about you know uh, uh, that that whole generational thing. We've also spoken about culture. So um, I mean. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, but the question is: uh, If you were to have kids, would you bring them up as Indian American, or what kind of blend would you would you bring into this whole thing? Yeah, I've thought about this question like a lot, <laughs> um, and my I have two amazing nieces. I have a three year old niece and a one year old niece um, who I've gotten to sort of watch their upbringing, and I've gotten to watch and be really observant on you know, raising children in this country without a whole lot of support, without a whole lot of help. Um, if I have children in this lifetime, which I think I hope I do, um, I really want them to experience this, um, kind of, you know, mixed, uh, American Indian experience that I had, you know, like the way that I was fully, taught to embrace the American side. And also, I mean, I, I may have been, I may have suppressed it a little bit, but I was really taught to fully embrace my Indian side as well. And I think, you know, now there are areas where I am much more American than I am Indian. And there are definitely areas where I'm much more Indian than I am American, but I really hope that my children can see my connection to India um, and absorb a little bit of that through, through my experience. You know, something that has been really kind of a priority for me is making sure I, you know, just visit my family in India as often as I can. Um, Pre-COVID, I was there every year. Um, I just got to spend two months in, in Bombay and spend a little time in Rishikesh um, earlier this year in April and May. And I go back as often as I can. I spend long periods if I can. And I fully try to immerse myself because I always leave with my heart just like so full. It almost feels like in some ways, like India is my recharge station. You know, I kind of, you know, I like come here, I like, you know, use all my reserves. I use all the love that I've been given while I'm in India. I share it and give as, you know, um, as much as I can, I give it to my patients and, you know, anyone that I kind of come and encounter with. And then once I'm running on empty, I'm like, Hmm, I think I need to book a trip. So, um, I definitely feel personally really connected. I, I will say also that connection for me happened when I was 18. Um, I grew up like kicking and screaming when it came to going to India. We used to go to India every year growing up. And, you know, I would like, I would be like, mom, I don't want to go. There's mosquitoes and I get bug bites and there's no AC and it's hot and I don't want to go. I want to hang out with my friends. And this summer, you know, like I want to go to this camp. And I was, I was for the most part, um, didn't appreciate it as a kid and on my own, totally like it kind of felt like I just like woke up one day when I was 18. Um, I think it was maybe right before I started college or maybe within the first few months of starting college, I called up my parents and I said, Hey, can we book a trip? I really want to go back. And I think when I started initiating trips is when it totally changed for me, right? Like that's when I wanted to engage. That's when I wanted to really kind of interact and, and be aware. And I wasn't, you know, I wanted to go sit at my, at the like 30th auntie's house for, mm. you know, in one day. And I, you know, I, I was willing and I wanted to, um, uh, to soak as much as I could in. So the truth of the matter is, is kids kind of come through you, right? They're not for you. So as much as I can, I want them to have their own experience. I hope that they see how much I love um, India and how much it has, how much my family there has impacted me, how much my parents' upbringing has impacted me. 
Um, whether I can impose it on them, I don't know if that's possible. But I think that they, I, I hope that children can see the things that make a person light up. And I think that they will know that it's just something that makes me light up. Um, and, you know, I, I, another huge variable is like who I will cope raise children with and what, how their relationship is. But yeah. I hope for me, at least my, my kids can see just what a, like how closely I hold the country to my heart, honestly. Yeah. I really like the part, the fact when you said that, you know, you cannot, it, they, they, they come through you, they're not for you, which I think is, you know, that's yeah. really like hit the nail on the head. You know, that that's exactly what it is. We, can, we have all these great plans of how you want to bring our kids up, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's really, it really, it depends on so many things which are beyond our control. So. Yeah. yeah. And I have to give credit to my parents for that because I do feel like, again, they exposed us, but they did not impose anything on us. And I think that's why I was able to have that relationship with, oh man, I think I want to go explore India for myself and I want to see what this is about. And um, yeah, when you can have that kind of healthy, unconditional detachment, um, I think, you know, that's when your kids are more receptive, but I'm not a parent yet. So find out what actually happens. We can do a podcast in like another decade and see what the results are. No. <laughs> so Abin, do you want to do one last question? I'm just looking at the looking at the clock. Yeah, okay, let's do a one. I'll try and just couple a bunch of things together. Um, so the, because I think we have a fair few, but okay. Yes. Uh, to our listeners, uh, what is naturopathic wellness when it comes to oncology? Because I have experience of cancer in my family as well. Uh, my mother was a patient. My grandmother was a patient. My other grandmother was also a patient. So there's, there's been a history there as well. But uh, I am aware and I also come from a family of doctors, engineers, and I've grown up around cardiac surgeons and and uh, and, and orthopedics. You, you name them, basically. So, But I am yet to come across something that deals with naturopathic wellness, specifically in the oncology department, as well as um, integrative oncology. So if you could shed some light on that, that would be great. And uh, what, and and, and further add to that question, someone practicing a niche, um, a niche field in in medicine as an Indian doctor, what are the challenges that you've had to face? I'm sorry Mm -hmm. if that's a lot, but I'm just trying to like, naturopathic so um anyone who is in india listening they will hear the word naturopathy and say oh i we, we there you know that's on every corner right um there is naturopathy homeopathy all of these different kind of sub specialties of medicine and traditional medicine um but Naturopathic medicine in the U.S. is actually a four-year accredited medical school where the first two years are the same as your MD and DO years, basic sciences, you're doing anatomy, physiology, all of that. But then your final two years in school, you are not only learning pharmacology and all the different pharmaceuticals, but you also learn botanical medicine. And then we have hours upon hours of nutrition training, which right now in, in conventional medical schools, nutrition training is maybe you know anywhere between one to three credits. It's not all that much. Um, whereas we're getting up to 16 credits of nutrition. So we really kind of understand what, how, what we are putting in our body affects our body and the, the way the body runs. If we think of food as fuel, the quality of the fuel that you put in is going to change the output of the energy that you have. So, um, and, and so that's kind of what naturopathic medicine is. Um, the subspecialty of naturopathic oncology that I do 
Um, first off, takes additional training. So I had to do a residency and a fellowship in the in naturopathic oncology. Spent time um, hosp- uh, rotating in hospitals, spending time with surgical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, you name it, and uh, really tried to learn how we can help support our cancer patients. Um, again, like when a person is diagnosed and, and maybe up and you experience it with your own family, but when a person's diagnosed, they want to have some sort of sense of control over their diagnosis. They want to say like, well, what can I eat? What can I do? What, you know, what should I, what should I, um, should I exercise? Should I not? Should I fast? And right now there's medical oncologists are not trained to answer those questions. So that's where we come in. My entire training is to help answer all of those questions for patients, help them guide them on nutritional recommendations or exercise recommendations or whether they should be taking that supplement. And if they are taking the supplement or the herb, are they taking the right dose and are they getting it from a good source or are they taking a really crappy, low quality supplement that has like, you know, a fourth of the dose that you need in it. So that is um, a little bit about the education. The naturopathic wellness standpoint, uh, from a naturopathic wellness standpoint, um, there are so many diseases in the U.S. right now that are lifestyle and diet, um, kind of the etiology of them are lifestyle and, and diet in origin. A lot of cardiovascular issues, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, a lot of these things can change with diet and lifestyle interventions. And a lot of those diseases that I just mentioned, things like diabetes are also risk factors for cancer. So if we can help our patients start to decrease their risk status or start to decrease or reverse their disease, then we are setting them up to be healthier in the future and not be at higher risk for other issues like cancer or depression or a chronic illness. So um, the wellness side of it is, hey, listen, you may not have a terminal diagnosis right now, but let's go ahead and figure out how we can help you. reverse your chronic illness or reverse your diabetes or whatever it is. So, um, okay. The second part of that question was, oh, challenges an Indian doctor. Um, okay. I have to say in the U S for the most part, Indian doctors have like a pretty good rep. Um, we like, you know, most people will request Indian physicians because I think that they know, and I know this learning through my dad, that Indian medical training is like top notch. You are exposed to, because you are obviously in, you know, different environment, you're in the tropics, you're still kind of, um, hygiene is not a given in India. You are dealing with a lot of very severe illnesses. You're dealing with still a lot of infectious agents that are infectious diseases that we don't have in the U S anymore. Or if we do, it's at very low numbers. So the amount that you're exposed to in India as a physician going through training is incredible. And you can, you know, come to the U.S. and diagnose based on physical exam and by good intake and asking the patient questions, right? Whereas in the U.S. and and you know, obviously, um, this is not a negative or a con of the U.S. training, but we have a lot of advanced technology here, right? We have these great MRI machines, we have these liquid biopsies, we have all of this cool, like, cool technology. But I think a lot of docs in their training become reliant on it, right? So. Um, while I was not trained in India, I definitely will appreciate the reputation that Indian doctors have set in the U.S. Because a lot of times people, you know, people will often ask me like, oh, were you were you trained in India? Because that's, you know, for them having experienced their um, Indian doctors, they know that they're going to get a really good high quality doctor. So um, I have not had challenges. Um as an Indian, I would say as a female doctor, there are more challenges. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Like people are like, wait, where's, are you the nurse? Get the doctor in here. Or, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I would say that majority of the challenges I've faced have been more gender focused rather than, um, you know, where my kind of my ancestry, I always will get the question. And, and, you know, this can sometimes toe the line of like, people will inquire and sometimes it will be nice. Sometimes it will be not of like, Oh, where are you from? Like, you know, um, what, where's your last name from? Why is your, you know, things like that. And, um, for the most part, if you stay respectful in the conversation, it can, it doesn't have to be a con, but yeah, I definitely will get, um, inquiries often about my name or, um, or my ancestry. Wow. I feel like we, we opened up, we opened up a very interesting can of worms right at the end for us to keep talking about, but episode two, part, part we, have, we have to have you back on at some point. Uh, so yeah, this was actually a really, really great episode. Uh, you know, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for for you know for for accepting the invite and thank you for being on here. I, I you know I think we had we had really great conversation. Personally, I learned a lot. Uh, you know, personally, just listening to your story was extremely inspirational. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 kind of I'm kind of reinforcing that into my own life and seeing what I can do uh, better. So I, I really appreciate it. I know I think the one question which uh, I'm sure people in the audience might have is uh, if so, how do people reach reach out to you? Are you accepting new customers and if, if so, how do, how do people reach you? Is it, is yeah. the website? Yeah. So I am definitely seeing new patients. Um, if you go to drmilani.com, my last name, and we can maybe link that, um, below, uh, you can find how to schedule with me. You can find how to contact me. I write a lot and do a lot of education and webinars for patients. So, um, if you Google me, you'll probably find that I'm doing something in the next few weeks, but, um, definitely my website is the place to start drmilani.com. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, I think we, we reached the end of our episode once again. Uh, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and we're definitely having you on in the future. So just <laughs> let's figure out our schedules and uh, we, we'll get back to you on that. Yeah. I, well, thank you for having me. I truly want to say to both of you, I think the platform and the conversations that you are bringing are incredibly insightful and important. And I think that sometimes, you know, regardless of what country you're coming from, the immigrant experience is so not is not talked about enough and it's not talked about to the people who are back home. And so the fact that you are creating this platform for people to share their stories is, is just, I think it's really going to change things and and shake things up. So awesome job guys. Well, thank Thank you. you. And uh, yeah, I mean, to, uh, to add to that. So if anyone of our listeners is is listening to this, listening or watching uh, this episode, um, Please do feel free to reach out if you have a story to tell, because we're we're more than happy to to have you on board and and to talk to you and to get a better understanding of who you are, where you come from, and and, and what you're doing. Uh, this whole idea was created to tell the stories of people like us, like yourself, uh, and we we'd love to we'd love to hear hear from you.